Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. Mm-hmm. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest today is a man who's done it all. Agent, manager, presently a promoter as CEO of Niederlander Concerts, Alex Hodges. Thank you, Bob. Glad to be here. Okay, so what's the status of the concert business today? It's, it's robust. You always got to look over your shoulder, though. You never know when the economy or something else is going to bite you. But it's really strong right now. What do you think accounts for that? I think a strong economy. I think that people have a jingle in their pocket or they have a job, they'll spend money on entertainment. Okay. That leads to the point where sometimes shows are put on for put up for sale like over a year before. Is that basically an economic thing? Hey, let's get the money while they have it or what? It's a good question. I think part of it is beat the competition, get on sale early. Uh, take money out of the market, um, and all the other reasons. You know, you're controlling somebody's money. You've got it in the bank. Okay. For those who are unfamiliar, tell us more about the purview of Niederlander Concerts. Well, Niederlander Concerts, part of a family-owned operation, organization. Um, The Niederlander family started in uh, Detroit in the theater business, in the early 1900s, so it's family-owned and over 100 years old and not for sale, There's a, so there is a certain sense of stability. That's right. A, it's a good thing. Unlike the rest of corporate America. <laughs> yep. Um, in the 70s, Jimmy Needlander Sr. Just to be clear, they left the Midwest, and they're like the number one player on Broadway, right? Don't they have the most theaters? Well, they uh, they may not have the most theaters, but I'll say the best, and they have nine. Right. So it's pretty robust. Um, um, they have Broadway theaters in Chicago, London, New York, L.A., and interest in San Francisco, uh, and booking arrangements for Broadway and other cities like uh, Durham, North Carolina. 
so the Broadway piece is the bigger family. And we piece. say, I mean, it's really the biggest. Hamilton plays in a Nederlander theater. Yes. And many Nederlanders. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going back to Jimmy in the 70s. So uh, Jimmy Nederlander and his brothers, there was Robert and Harry and, uh, and um, um, who else? Uh, Joey and one other who wasn't in the music business, Freddie. Anyway, Jimmy Nederlander Sr., uh, went into New York from from Detroit years ago to start and challenge the Broadway scene in the in the city. In the seventies, had an opportunity to uh, work with Los, in Los Angeles uh, with the city on reviving uh, and recreating, or you know, building up the Greek theater in L.A. Also, had an opportunity to purchase the Pantages Theater with a local partner. So all of a sudden it was, uh, do you want to go west? And I think Mr. Needlelander's friends all said, don't do it. You'll be, this is the stupidest thing. It's terrible. But he'd done something stupid before, and it worked out okay. <laughs> In the process, they also built amphitheaters, Poplar Creek in Chicago, Pine Knob Music Theater in, in uh, Clarkston, Michigan, which is Detroit, uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion, uh, in Columbia, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., and between there and Baltimore, and others, and including Pacific Amphitheater in Los Angeles. So the outdoor music, contemporary music concert um, experience um, was uh, really led by the Nederlander family. Really, they were the first ones who were doing it before it became right. a thing with uh, Universal Concerts, et cetera. Y yes, um, after they really had this equation dominated, a lot of people wanted to copy it. Um, MCA, Universal Concerts, copied it. Pace Music copied it out of Texas. And um, so there became more. Um, there's some historic venues, of course, uh, Red Rocks in Denver. In Tanglewood in Massachusetts. Tanglewood, Massachusetts. Um uh, Blossom Music Theater is pretty, you know, it's been around a long time in, uh, in Cleveland. Some of them then later came under MCA Universal Watch, and some were Nederlander. They really, they really changed the model, and everybody followed. Okay. So how long have you been working for Nederlander? Well, I've worked for them twice. That okay. I'm not even working this time. <laughs> I came back to the company in April of 2007. Okay. So what are you concentrating on now? We're concentrating on uh, more venues to book, uh, working as an as a extension of the venue ownership and management. Sometimes we don't own it. We don't manage it. It could be municipally owned. It could be privately owned. Uh, and if we come in and, and make a dedicated emphasis on booking it with focus, trying to, you know, not just do an occasional one-off, but really concentrate as an advocate for a venue in a market, we found out we can change the landscape. Give me an example. Uh, there's several. In San Jose, for example, at the Civic Auditorium in uh, San Jose, it was essentially abandoned for concerts. How, how, how many, uh, what's the capacity? 
Yeah, uh, three thousand. Okay. So you can set it up a little under or slightly more. Right, right. There's a balcony. It's a civic center. It's in okay. the from the thirties. And it was um in the in the um seventies into the eighties, Bill Graham tried to do concerts there. Um this the venue needed an uplift, needed a lot of uplift. And anyway, the uh, Bill Graham decided to not go back at a point. And interestingly, a lot of the shows that he did there were booked by me and my agent career. Uh, so it was it was uh, kind of a loss of an opportunity to play another date in the Bay Area when he quit doing the midsize or the smaller smaller spaces. Um, so fast forward all these years where it was essentially abandoned, used for a minor league basketball experiment for a little while, used for some graduations, used for overflow for convention city, convention uh, um, uh, business, but primarily um, just an extra room in the city. And the city recognized they needed to maybe consider renovating. Uh, put together a budget, and one of the things when we were introduced to the venue in 2008, and probably because no one was interested, <laughs> the uh, thing that caught my attention was uh, was that the city had spent a million dollars on a boiler, and I'm going like, it's the last thing on my agenda, but it maybe should be the first because it represents a real commitment to the venue. You know, the underpinnings, the infrastructure to make it work. If they would do that, that's not seen and not cosmetic, maybe they would do a good job with the other amenities that would make it a hospitable place for rock and roll bands. How much money? So ultimately, was the city's money or Niederlander's money? City's money. I I did some uh, uh, consulting for free. I also contributed to uh, pay some consultants to help advise on certain specifics. And we uh, started actually booking during some of the construction in 2009. And that was probably a little premature. Okay. You're the exclusive booker for the building. We were, and now we're the primary booker, but there's some other promoters, international promoters and specialty promoters that do some shows. So we do almost all. And how many shows is that? We do, um, you know, 40, 50 shows, uh, and it's 12 months a year. And uh, when when I spoke about turning a venue around, uh, that takes the money. It takes some vision. It takes some uh, staying power. When we did our first 13 shows, we lost on 12. Really? Yeah. What, why do you think that was? New, unfamiliar, or the familiarity content was not good. Actually, after we signed the deal was the first time I read the Yelp reviews, and they were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so you literally I, had to turn it around. Oh, goodness. I, I, I trusted my vision, though. And, uh, and uh, Jimmy Nadelander let me keep going which is terrific. So now it's uh, robust, and we, we, we're just doing a great job. You don't make money on every show, but losing on 12 out of 13 was not good. So now we'll make money on, uh, you know, almost all. So other than showing that the building was new and booking good talent, what else did Niederlander do 
to improve the situation? What was Niederlander's special sauce? Well, we made a lot of recommendations on, on making the consumer, like, interested, and and that included such important things as, um, um, you know, AC outlets in the dressing room so they could tune a guitar, uh, areas for the crew to work, uh, behind the staging area, two star dressing rooms, not one, uh, renovating the upstairs dressing rooms, and then outside in the hallways, we thought, what's going to make this appealing? The venue, having been built in the 30s, had a rich history. So we thought about um, big life-size posters framed, put on the walls, that memorialized the date that the stars had been there. And it's pretty interesting when you've realized that the Hood played there, Frank Sinatra played there, uh, Barbara Streisand had played there. So... Um, um, you know, Santana and um, so many, so many others, but it was all a long time ago from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and stopped. So we reincarnated the history, you know, uh, with the slogan, Legends Played Here, and, and uh, big, huge pictures. So all the fans come and they go, wow, they stand in front of it and take each other's pictures along with some historic great you know artists rolling stones they'll stand in front of that and take pictures so that that livened the otherwise you know rather dull uh, um you know concourse and what other uh buildings you book in um Another story of, of uh, turning around is much more recent. In 2013, a winery in Paso Robles built and opened a 3,000-seat amphitheater. Um, fixed seats, 2,000, 1,000 lawn, and on the pit, you can use it open pit or you can— In any case, it was—we uh, we were interested— but the, uh, the, the deal made did not provide, in my mind— an opportunity to make money. So someone else went in there, and they lost a lot of money. Why did it not—was uh, it not going to be profitable? Well, first of all, it's new. Second, its location is Pastor Robles. It's, that's not a big population. So you have to— So def- for those people unfamiliar, what's the closest big city to Paso Robles? Uh, the closest small big city is San Luis Obispo. Okay. <laughs> and how far is it from San Luis Obispo? Uh, you know, call it 15 miles. So, But it's 104 miles to Bakersfield and 104 miles to Fresno. So you got this gigantic center, central part of the state creating a kind of what I call a triangle almost to get people to come. And anything new then requires, like, you got to book it. Agents have to, you know, accept the vision, take a risk. You have to—we have to pay for it, so it's all at our dollar risk. Then then the fans don't know of it because it's new. Uh, so in this case, it was good to be second in, and we just did a great job. Also, it took time. So last year, 2019, was the first really robust, profitable, you know, uh, uh, bottom line profitable year in uh, in in Paso Robles at uh, Vina Robles Amphitheater. It's fantastic venue, and now we we think we're there. 
recognition from the fans, recognition from agents and managers and artists. And how many shows did you do there last year? 28. Okay. Now, uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Nederlander is big, but also there's Live Nation and AEG. How does Nederlander fit in the landscape? Well, you're talking about a very big elephant. <laughs> Maybe two in a llama, <laughs> llama edition. There's a couple of big elephants. And and uh, it's interesting. Um, uh, those younger people in the industry who d- haven't really experienced the days of the independent promoter in almost every major city and, and smaller cities um, really don't know how the landscape has changed. So a young agent will go, wow, I just got a 50-day tour offer from Live Nation. That's, uh, that's hard to compete with. And, and so we're trying to uh, identify markets and venues we can work in and make the experience unique and then just not lose the opportunities to the Live Nation or the AEG national tour. And there's a couple of other things that have made it difficult, like the casino business is unique, and they can afford to pay artists on another type of uh, P&L than just looking at ticket sales. And then um, 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 there's fares. That's that's a unique animal, not really competitive day-to-day to what we do. Right. Um, so it's it's difficult. I recommend to young agents, stay an agent. <laughs> okay. Since you've done anything, you were born where? I was born in Decatur, Georgia, in De- Emory Hospital. What, what was like living in Georgia back then? Was it as southern as we felt up north, or what was going on? Of course not. Uh you know, major cities are major cities with a variety of population. Just so I know, why was Decatur Decatur? What was there that drove these well, stuff? Well, Decatur, that's a good question because I think uh, um, for years I used to just answer the question where I'm from is Atlanta. Right. So Decatur is um, sort of a bedroom community of Atlanta. But it was a, it was a county seat of DeKalb County. So good schools, a lot of good schools. Amazing um, uh, high school football team. Um, and, um, you know, so you would take the trolley or the bus or an automobile to Atlanta for major shopping trips. But uh, Decatur was very significant and important. And then years and years and years ago, you know, train came through and stopped and so forth. So it was, it was a bustling, bustling uh, uh, community. And so what did your uh, father do for a living? My father um, was an executive at a company called Pure Oil Company. And I think later a lot of their stations in the southeast and other places gave way to Gulf Oil. But he had been – he had. it's interesting. He had been, uh, uh, a, you know, like oil and petroleum salesperson before the automobiles really – proliferated and before there was a service station on every other corner. Uh, So when the world changed for automobiles, he was in charge of the entire southeast on a smaller company called Walford Oil. And they picked up a contract for distribution of gas. And my father actually visited small towns 
knocking on doors, meeting people at the barbershop, uh, and saying, you need a service station in your town. Really? And he did that all over the southeast. So it was pretty, uh, it was pretty in- interesting to, to know that he was a part of that, you know, before it was really anything. Well, it's also fascinating because living in Los Angeles, gas stations keep disappearing. I know. <laughs> now, when you, when you want to get gas, you got to think about where you're going. <laughs> there used to be a station on every corner. How many kids in the family? I'm the baby of four brothers. Okay. And the other three brothers, what are they up to? So, uh, listen, I'm, I'm the baby, um, four brothers. Um, I'm enough junior that I got the benefit of having uh, four older brothers. I think well, how, what was the gap? Uh, between my, me and my closest brother, right. he's 11 years older. Wow. And he's still kicking. And how about your old? The, the oldest brother um, turned 95 January the 3rd, 2020. And he's still kicking. How, how, has he got all his marbles? He does, remarkably. Because my girlfriend's mother's 95, has all her marbles. I was talking to my mother earlier today. She's 93. She knows who I am, but it's, you know, getting kind of bad. It's, it's, it's it, you know, to see the aging, you know, we I have a mother-in-law who's going through some issues, and uh, but my brothers uh, did well. My old, my second oldest brother did die in 2013, and he was uh, exhausted, really, after being a caregiver for his wife who had Alzheimer's. That's tough. A tough one. It's a long goodbye. And your other brother? One was a doctor. He was in the Navy, you know, during uh, World War Two, he was in the uh, peace-building part of the Navy uh, as a Navy doctor stationed in Japan uh, after the war was over, and he moved around a lot. Uh, then he settled in North Georgia uh, as a you know a, a country or a mountain doctor. Are you close with your brothers? And real close. Okay, what lessons did you learn from them? I don't have any brothers. So being the youngest and having three older brothers. Interesting. I had to speak at the uh, brother who died. I had to speak at his service. And at first I couldn't think of a story. I mean, my mind went blank. And, uh, you know, so I wrote notes on three-by-five card. And my, I practiced in front of my wife. And she said, very nice, but anybody could say those generalities. And, and she was right. She said they need people need to hear some stories that they – have forgotten or never heard. And so um, I did it. I found found a way. And it triggered something that I started jotting down any story that I had heard from the older brothers. And one of the things that my brothers uh, carried over from my father and my mother is when you're going to do something, do it right. Just do it right. That's the big message. Don't shortcut it. Okay, so what kind of kid are you in school? Popular? Uh, reasonably, I was a president of the Hot Rod Club. What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we uh, we saw these uh, 39 Ford Coupes, and we saw these, and they had passed on. And we saw that people, some race car guys were, were putting, uh, you know, uh, Chevrolet motors in them. And uh, 
you know, it was just kind of a cool thing. I think drag racing had its moment at, in, in the in the fifties, right? In in the, in the early sixties, maybe. So uh, maybe my parents kind of backed it and gave us a garage to work in, and I created at school a, uh, a hot rod club called the Idlers, and we had we took minutes, we had rules, we had meetings and votes and all kinds of stuff, and it was. Part of some of the other experiences in school are from my brothers and hearing that they were in, in uh, you know, different classes and clubs and so forth. So it was just a matter of, of participation. And uh, I did build a hot rod. Okay, tell me about your hot rod. I built, it was uh, no fenders, uh, 34 Ford uh, uh, convertible. Uh, Might have been a coupe originally, but there was no top <laughs> when I got it. And I put in a uh, 283 uh, Chevrolet V8 engine, two four-barrel carburetors, and and I got it going where it was really drivable and uh, and and really pretty awesome. And time ran out. I went to college, and uh, so I went to Mercer University. Okay, but what happened to the hot rod? Well, that's that's part of it. What <laughs> okay. what, what do parents do when kids go? To, they sell something. Exactly. <laughs> So my hot rod was put up for sale by my father, and a guy came and got it. Our father wanted his garage back. I right. Don't, I don't blame him. Um, so uh, the fellow that bought it uh, raced it. And really? I never did race it. He raced it. And he brought to the house, rang the doorbell, knocked on the door, met my father, and said, your son might be happy to know, and showed him a trophy of winning a quarter track you know wow. drag race. so that was cool i just kind of felt good okay so you can do uh, cars are all computerized now but generally speaking you're completely familiar with how cars are built that's why i have a 1941 ford truck oh really <laughs> i do how, with, a, with how, a mustang engine in it how did you put the engine in no okay how often do you drive that uh, once a week really yeah what's that like it's just cool it, you know it looks it looks it's, it's shiny and it's black and it you know Looks pretty interesting, cool, and the big white, to, big white walls, and uh, nobody thinks that they think they don't want to be behind me because I'll be real slow, <laughs> and then I'm in front of everybody. And then, <laughs> but that has pneumatic brakes; you have to stand on the brakes, right, to stop it. Uh, yes, but they work pretty good. Okay, and you can down downshift. How many gears? Three. Okay, so Mercer College, what's that like? Well, Mercer University, how I ended up deciding to go there was one brother went to Emory, one brother went to the University of Georgia, one brother went to Georgia Tech. And in Georgia, there was four kind of major educational institutions. There, there's now more who have grown in their stature, but that left Mercer. And I applied for uh, to Mercer. I applied. I made one application to one school. Uh, those days were different. Now right, you got to— right. Got to make you know twenty applications. Right. Uh, anyway, I was uh, I learned what the word tentative meant, so I got accepted. But the word tentative was in the sentence, and I'm going. I really wish I knew for sure. Uh, anyway, I got into Mercer, and it was it was a good experience. And that that uh, uh, interestingly, this plays into my uh, my brothers on war uniform and in, uh, in World War Two. Closest brother uniform, and he was—he got a bronze star for building schools in South Korea, 
as they were cleaning mines up, you know, and then building schools. And so, uh, you know, and I'd worn a uniform in ROTC in high school. I didn't want to do it again. So first day of college, I get a letter from a, a high school buddy who had gone into the Marine Corps. He wrote and said, drop some class and go sign up for ROTC. You do not want to be an enlisted man in the service. Wow. <laughs> and I did it. <laughs> so I wore a uniform in college one day a week. And um, So you graduated. Was there any war going on when you graduated? Not really. I kind of missed. I kind of, I would guess I'm, you know, uh, participated when during during the Cold War, mainly. I right. went to Turkey. I was near Istanbul. Oh, really? And that was fun. Um, almost two years, not quite. And then I came to California because everybody wants to go to California, of course. And I got uh, my orders for California to Fort Irwin. And I don't know if you know where it was. But I don't. I didn't either. So, <laughs> I look, so I looked it up. Slap dab in the middle of the Mojave Desert. That's a long beach. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in the old days, if you were in ROTC, uh, okay. So then you had to go in the Army for two years after? Exactly. Okay. And that was the Army, not the Marines. Right. I was a finance officer and head of the finance department, so I had a nice office and, you know, it was pretty, pretty, pretty neat job. And what did you study in, at Mercer? Uh, economics. Not just business management, but economics. And, and what was the plan? History, economics. History was my minor. Uh, the plan was to go to law school, and uh, I did for a little while. Oh, really? I didn't know that. But I, I, I you know, I was kind of schooled out in a while. Oh, man. I, I went to law school, but I had to take at least two years off. It just, uh, I didn't take any time off, and I also went to summer school a lot, and I worked you know, one or two jobs during summer school, and all, and I booked bands in that period too in college. But law school, I just was, I guess, schooled out. So I went to the dean and said, "I'm going to drop out." He said, "Stick out the quarter of the semester." He said, "You're doing better than you think you are," because I was, you know, dean student all the time and an undergraduate. Uh, and this was where the law school. It was part of Mercer. Okay. Walter F. George School of Law, okay. Mercer School of Law. And uh, so I said, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, good. He said, you can always come back, but finish your, finish this grade, you know, this period. Uh, and I got okay marks, you know. They were, okay is not good enough for me, but it was, uh, it was, you know, I got. Ever through. any thought about going back? Of course. Really? Of course. But my brothers told me something. You're going to make officers pay. You're not going to go back to school. How good was officers' pay? Pretty good when you've been selling shoes on Friday night and Saturday afternoon, for, you know. <laughs> okay, so tell me about booking bands in college. How'd you get started in that? Well, you know, love music, popular music, and I always, I always had a propensity to listen to something that uh, necessarily my older brothers didn't listen to. Or parents didn't listen to. So like a lot of kids, you know, you get your own bands, your own music. And you and when I went off to college, you know, I had my own music and and uh but I also something that plays a part I think in my overall career, I was exposed to an older generation of music growing up and from my mother and my brother. So already I was absorbing various, you know, different decades of music. 
not just mine, but others. And uh, and that and that's given me, uh, I think, maybe a pretty pretty good uh, appreciation of the of, of music through the through the years. Uh, but anyway, I was um, a friend of mine. We were fraternity brothers, Phi Delta Theta. Uh, Phil Walden and uh, was we, Phil. Phil was a fraternity brother. Yes. While you were there, right? We were Phi Delta Theta, and uh, and he was president of the of the class. I joined late. I didn't join the fraternity the first couple of years of uh, of Mercer, um, but I was helping all of these guys, and I had buddies that that were Phi Delts, including Phil. And some of them I was helping study, and some of them I was uh, taking their money because I could type, and I was typing term papers. <laughs> so in any case, uh, one day after a history class, I'm standing in the hallway, and Phil's down the hall after another class, and I went down to the end of the hall, and I, and I always remember this, uh, this conversation. Um, he smoked cigarettes. I didn't. But in those days, you weren't bothered by people smoking right. cigarettes anywhere because everybody did. Of course. Um, but he was lighting a cigarette, and he had a little matchbook. And, you know, you always look to see if it's from, you know, a vacation in uh, Miami or, you know, something on the matchbook or a restaurant. And uh, it was an odd logo. I said, what's that logo? He said, it's a, it's a, a designed a PW for Phil Walden, and I'm going to book bands full-time after classes and quit my cousin's store. I go, that's interesting, pretty pretty cool, right? So chit-chat, right before class, he said, when do you get out of school? He said, I'm, getting, I'm going to take an office over WIBB radio. And I knew where that was because uh, it was across the street from an apartment complex that I had become the resident manager of before I moved to another location, another apartment. Where is Mercer? Mercer's in Macon. Macon, Georgia, right in the center of the state. And small. Still small. Still small. Macon or Mercer? Mercer's bigger than it was. Macon is still small. (laughs) So what was making like when you were going to college? Probably eight ninety thousand people, and uh, oh, small. you know, quiet, kind of quiet, uh, uh, you know. But it was a county seat to a Bibb County, uh, you know. So it was just, uh, you know, just a kind of a you know hallmark small town with a college. How or far? Two is, how far? Interestingly, Macon also had the first, I think, the first chartered woman's college in the world, Westland. Really, in Macon. And uh, rich, rich history for for Westland in particular, and also for Mercer. Um, so I'm standing. Wait, there. wait, wait! A couple of questions. Sure. How far is Mercer from Atlanta? Ninety miles. Okay. How did you meet Phil Walden? Never mind this episode with promotion. You know, in classes, hanging out, talking about music. Was he a charismatic guy? He was. He was. And then to, for, for the fraternity, he was. He was president. And he was pretty charismatic and an interesting guy, um, a lot of self-confidence. And uh, I don't know, we struck up uh, so he said, a, a kinship. I right, and he said, okay, what, when do you classes end? What are you doing? And, and I said, you know, whatever time. He says, well, I get out a, an hour earlier. 
And I have collected, I've gone to the libraries and written down the addresses of every school, every fraternity, every entertainment committee, and more uh, from the library, from the phone books that are in the libraries. And he says, so I'm writing letters about the bands I'm going to book. And I've got... Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. These local musicians, and they have names because all the bands, you know, you can have a garage band, you got to give it a name. So everybody had names of bands. And they could also play anybody's music. So the names could change, of course. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, he said, I can't type, and i got to send these letters out. And none of the girls at the school want to come down and do this. Uh, they're doing their thing. And uh, so 
instead of whatever I was getting for typing term papers, now I'm going to get something for typing letters about bands. So Phil would write them on this cheapest yellow paper you could <laughs> buy, and I'd come down and uh, type them and answer the one phone. You know, uh, actually we had, I think, two phones and two numbers. There was no uh, rolling over or conference calling. It was just two numbers. And uh, he had bought a old military desk, and a couple of them, and I put, uh, I went and bought flat doors from, you know, right. Munford Do-It-Yourself for the lumber company. And I varnished them and painted them and stained them, and so we had two executive desks. So how long after you started typing did he actually book a band? Well, first I told I told Phil, when you go to lunch, I'll answer the phone, but I'm not going to try to book a band. And I've, I've, I have, you know, over the years mentored some people in the business, and not everybody thinks that they can could sell. Right. And it's selling. Um, and I didn't think I could sell ladies' shoes. I could sell door-to-door. I could sell if I could see somebody. But I didn't think I could sell by listening to somebody and talking to them on the phone. And then one day, Phil had gone to pick up some lunch and sandwiches for us, and I'm answering the phone, and they asked me about a band, and I've been typing all the letters, and I knew all the musicians. And uh, so I sell some guy, uh, uh, some school, a band. And I'm going, gee whiz, that worked. (laughs) (laughs) And you learn to listen. You know, I learned to listen to my brothers, my mother, learned a lot of uh, basic good life things, and I was always observing, you know, my uncle and my brothers and other people. And in school, I had decided to be a good student, not a bad one. So, uh, also, my parents were helping. They would pay for the books and tuition. I paid for my, my living in school. Um, the, the idea to sell on the telephone was really foreign, but you learn how that you don't have to listen to yourself. You learn you have to listen to the guy on the other phone, on the other side of the phone, that you can't see. So you get no body language except from voice. And it's really fascinating to to allow void to be filled by one of the two of us and find out an interest. And somebody's going to ask a question. I'm going to just talk my head off about the musicianship, wrong move. You talk a little bit. And then and then if the person on the other end of the phone is interested, they'll ask a question and, and that and that'll create, you know, a good exchange, dialogue, and you can almost visualize the person on the other side of the phone. And I think we miss that today with uh, texting and emails. To to work through a problem on a band and routing and so forth. It, it, it's just so much better if you're talking on the phone. But that's but today's another story. How me. important was it to not talk business on the phone? Like talk about sports or the weather to try to establish a rapport. Well, since the phones were a little bit more expensive by the clock, um, there was a certain sense of efficiency that was needed. Um you might ask a question, you might say something, but that student union person or, or, or fraternity person was really calling with a, with a purpose. 
So you had to stay in. You really didn't have that kind of a, of a relationship with them yet. You might develop it, and then you'd ask about the team or the football team at that university, and you'd have – but that was after you've done business more than once. Really, they were interested in, in – uh, and there was a lot of interest, I think, buying a band, but buying a band from a southern school or buying a band from somebody that wasn't New York City. I mean they didn't want to buy from New York City? I think they felt like they always had to until we started. And you had no competition other than New York City. There was a guy in uh, in South Carolina who was booking cover bands, and and he was pretty successful with it. But we thought we could do it differently, more novel, have musicians around Macon who were really good, and uh, and we did it. Uh, we weren't we weren't into beach music. We were into what you would know as rhythm and blues. Okay, but you're doing that, but then you ultimately go into the Army. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it was uh, the Army was good in several ways. Well, how do you tell Phil, hey, I'm going to go? Well, oh, interestingly, Phil went in the Army first. Oh, really? So I got a letter where Phil's saying, you know, uh, uh, and Phil's Alan, Alan Walden. Alan Walden, Phil's younger brother, right, came in to help. And Phil's father um, retired from a cousin's or whoever owned the you know clothing store or hat store, and uh, he came in sometimes to help. And he established Alan, Phil, myself, and C.B. Walden had a relationship with an up-and-coming singer named Otis Redding. Okay, let's slow down here. But let me go back to Phil going right. into service right. a second. So here's Phil in the service. He had a better gig than I did because he was putting bands together in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> but I was a finance guy when I went in. Anyway, Phil's in Europe, and the letters in the mail are all of his visions, back and forth letters, a few calls, but not many, to, uh, you know— enhance the office or book a band or sign another band, and all of a sudden things were more vibrant. Then he came back, but I was transitioning to go in. And we had, you know, I'll call it 10 minutes of overlap, but then I was I was in the service. A considerable part of my two years was when, was when uh, Phil had been back. So Alan and... Myself booked bands when Phil was in the service, and Alan really carried carried the torch well uh, because then I had to go in the service, and I needed some money, so I had a couple of other uh, jobs it, it, in addition. But hard to pay commissions at that level, and then it just got better, and it got a little bit better. Then all of a sudden, I'm, t- I'm on active duty, and I'm shipped off to uh, I went Fort Ben Harrison in India, India, Indianapolis, Indiana was first. And I uh, wasn't a very good student in finance class. They called me Lieutenant Sleepy. Um, <laughs> but uh, so they sent me to the, one of the more remote places outside of Turkey. And the guy that I replaced who was going to teach me everything had already been gone for two weeks. So here I'm a lieutenant. I'm a head of a finance unit. I've got five people that work for me, and I know nothing. 
And it was more interesting than that because this particular unit, part of NATO, I guess, anyway, um, Tuslog, Turkish U.S. logistic. Wow. I reported to the Air Force and I reported to the Army, but I was an Army officer. The cool thing about that, I got to go to meetings in Heidelberg and I got to go to meetings in Athens, Greece. So I was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, you're living pretty large. <laughs> okay. Yep. But Phil was back, and when I was in the service, he and his brother would send me albums, and they were signing bands, and Otis Redding was becoming a star. I mean, a really Okay, a star. just slow down for a second. One, when you're in the Army, do you think when you're done you're going to go back to work with these characters? That was Phil's idea while he was in the service, and he and I still have a letter that he wrote with that vision. Did I believe in it? No, I thought I'd go back to law school. Okay. Was Macon known as a musician's hangout, musician's town? No. So how did you meet Otis Redding? And with one exception, uh, Little Richard had come from the Oh, really? Macon. Right. Well, that's but when you look at Georgia and, and uh, Ray Charles had come from Albany, uh, James Brown was in Augusta, Little Richard had been in Macon, and he moved to California. And then this uh, young artist was starting to take off. And what it took was a combination of, uh, of vision and energy from some young guys and a similarly aged young musician uh, who was serious about his career and could envision getting bigger, whatever that might mean. Uh, so that's Otis and Phil and me and Alan. Okay. So Otis was from Macon. Yes. And maybe who, Hawkinsville. Okay, right okay. outside okay. of Macon. But and, Macon. Who, and when you signed him, what was his level of reach? Well, when, when Phil had known him, even before my going in and typing letters, so Otis was sort of the catalyst for a lot of the musicians because he's such a good singer. Phil had a lot of confidence in the career of a, of another musician, a left-handed guitar player named Johnny Jenkins, who never really made it. Right. Became a big studio musician. Not so much. Okay. Not so much. Why do you think Johnny Jenkins didn't make it? I think it was had to do with being in the cups. Okay. Uh, which means drinking. Right. And he just, he was an emotional guy. He was a great guy. Um, you know, he, he, he wasn't a, you know, you know, like a irresponsible oddball, but he, but he couldn't, he didn't have quite the drive and the discipline and the, and the, and the self-discipline that you need to have. Okay. So you're in the army. He's selling, sending you these records. Is he sending you what kind of records? Well, it's pretty cool because, uh, because the adjutant of my post, it told me that, you know, the commander wouldn't let you go out on the – sign out on the weekends because we were kind of remote. And uh, he picked me up in a personal car, four-door Chevrolet. And I said, how do you get a personal car over here? He says, uh, I'll tell you all about that later. And you can fill out papers and have a car shipped over, and then you sell it. And then it becomes a taxi cab. But anyway, I looked over in the back seat. I was, he was telling me – uh, that I was going to just be in my in my quarters and in my room for the next year and a half. 
And I'm and I'm going like, wow, you got a Ray Charles album on the back seat of your car. You know, he's from Georgia, even though he's living in California. Ray Charles is awesome. He says, oh, how do you? And I made up, you know, told him a story. And I said, as a young musician that uh, is uh, is taking hold and uh, has these arms of mine and pain in my heart, I've already been out and had some traction. I said, you ever heard of Otis Redding? And I don't remember. I don't remember his answer, but it started a friendship between me and this captain. So here I'm, a young, you know, uh, white lieutenant, and he's an African American captain from. Los Angeles, <laughs> and we're stationed in the middle of nowhere in Turkey, but it's not the middle of nowhere because we're only 28 miles from Istanbul. Okay, did he ultimately let you out on the weekends? He and uh, he would tell the commander, only Lieutenant Hodges is requested. <laughs> <laughs> so we would go to embassy parties, and uh, I would take the albums, Sam and Dave and all of these really cool albums from Stax Records that Phil would send me. And I'd take these records, and you put them on, and they were vinyl, and uh, you know it was just uh, like a cool, it was a cool deal, uh, and fun, and you know, some Istanbul is a metropolis and attracts a lot of interesting people, and you know, an author like James Baldwin would be at one, and just different, different people, and of course, girls too, and, and it was, <laughs> and it was, uh, it was cool. So I had this outlet, and I had a pal who had. You know, he was in the in the chain of command. It was it was it was a good deal, and I had a good staff, and I did get my four door Chevrolet over there. Really? So it was great. And then I put in for change to orders to go to California, and I asked for Presidio, San Francisco, or Fort Ord up that way, because uh, uh, you know, young kid growing up in Georgia wants to come to California. Of course. Of course. So anyway. I got orders, and I asked somebody, you know, Fort Irwin, and one officer said, oh, I was stationed there. Let me tell you the good and the bad. He said, And then he said, here's the bad. I said, you never finished the good. He said, <laughs> he said there isn't any. <laughs> but it was okay, actually. I, I, I had a good time. I replaced a major in his position, took over a failing finance office, Passed uh, muster, got the civilian troops and just civilian employees in line, uh, taught them what they're supposed to know that I didn't know by reading and talking to them. And then the military guys, I had a good relationship with the, with every level. Uh, and I was had repl- I was a, now a first lieutenant, had replaced a major, and. Um, it was it was uh, pretty cool. So I'd come to uh, I'd come into uh, Los Angeles almost every weekend. But there was one weekend when I said I was going to go to Los Angeles, and the commander had sent somebody to tell me I was invited to the officers' club for New Year's Day for a special brunch, and I announced that I was going to be in Los Angeles on New Year's Eve, and I wouldn't be able to make it. And the gentleman said, have you ever heard of command performance? <laughs> and I go, that means I have to? And he says, you have dress blues, don't you? And that was the dress blue right. uniform and so forth. So I don't remember if I went to L.A. and then made it, but I did make it. 
Uh, maybe I canceled LA. I can't imagine at that age I would have canceled the <laughs> LA trip. Um, but it was it was good, and uh, even even uh, I think I think a part I w- I'm kind of missing here is that when I was transitioning from Turkey, visiting home in Georgia and family, uh, Phil and, and Alan asked me to drop down to Macon. And, uh, you know, 90 miles, get in the car, drive down, see an uncle, see Phil and Alan, and everybody's driving these brand-new Thunderbirds and cool cars. And I'm going, what in the world? I said, you, you just can't. You had to come see it. And that's what they had said. You've got to drive down <laughs> here and see it. And it's just, wow. They had bought an office building, which had been a chicken cleaning and selling. You know, the basement was feathers. and the, But they'd already cleaned it up, and it was a gorgeous two-story, basement story in one street level, offices for Otis, for Phil, for Allen, uh, for another booker. And it's like, wow, so here's your salary when you get out, and you'll go pick out the best furniture at the furniture store, and you'll have enough money to buy a new car. And when do you get out of the service? So probably when I finally got out of the service, uh, I just probably went home for a week and then down to Macon. And, and that was, was what that was what year in in sixty seven sixty seven okay so spring, you, spring spring late winter spring of sixty seven and so what's going on there at uh, Phil Walden making in sixty seven uh, Otis was just getting bigger by the minute um, Sam and Dave had been signed uh, Eddie Floyd with the song Knock on Wood had been signed. Percy Sledge was signed out of Alabama and uh, uh, with the best version of uh, When a Man Loves a Woman. When a Man Loves a Woman. Uh, great. And uh, I had a conversation with Michael Bolton one night about about Percy and, and that song. It was just, you know, it was just nice. And uh, anyway, um, other artists, Otis had discovered a young singer, I, I think maybe out of Baltimore area, uh, named Arthur Conley, and Otis wrote sweet soul music for him, so he had a hit, and Phil, and, Phil had uh, struck up a relationship with Clarence Carter. Uh, he had a number one hit. Funny, back then, sometimes the number one hit was the B-side. Now, they quit doing that A-side and B-side. And it was probably a mistake because several number one hits were not the intended hit right. back in those days. Uh, so it was pretty cool. Anyway, uh, things were were rolling. They were really, really uh, uh, great, interesting. And uh, uh, so I didn't go back to Mercer Law School. <laughs> And you're working there. What are you? You're selling bands at that point. Are you involved in management? What are you doing? Not I, Phil was a manager uh, with a dream of having a label, and Phil and Phil and uh, Otis had a publishing together, and and I was uh, a booker, an agent. No, uh, that was it. You know, I had a job, and a good job, and paying more than the army. And so, uh, 
Otis dies. What is what's that like? Well, the weekend of that trip, I had booked the tour. Uh, it was a weekend tour. It wasn't, it was, right at this moment, Otis was doing, uh, you know, like a few dates and then taking a, you know, a week off or something. And I was supposed to go with him on Friday and and uh, had some trouble on a tour. I had my bag packed at the office. He came into the office, said, are you ready to go? And I said, I can't. I got some, uh, I just got work to do. And uh, uh, solving a routing problem or something with a promoter or a band or I don't really have any idea what it was, but, you know, duty calls. And uh, Otis said, uh, uh, I'll see you. He had to go to Memphis and do a little bit more overdubbing. And uh, he said, I'll see you Monday, and next weekend we'll take the plane and go to the Bahamas. And Sunday night I'm in my apartment, and I got the call asking what city Otis was to be in, and they wanted some extra verification of, uh, the, you know, that it was his plane that had crashed in Lake Monona, Wisconsin. There you go. I stayed on for a while. Sam and Dave were hot. But the uh, spirit, the mood, the spirit, the energy, the emotional content inside you changed. And I went and got a suit and tie job. <laughs> Which was what? Uh, helping some people run for uh, election in the South. Um, and... Uh, you know, I moved to Atlanta, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, interesting stuff. Um, closer to family. Um, and then Phil and I would keep in touch and go to lunch on occasion on a Saturday in Atlanta. He started dating a girl in Atlanta. And fast forward about two years, he brought me a... Uh, Acetate, which is, uh, you know, pressing, test pressing for an album, white label, no, no art. See, so go home and listen to this. If you like it, we'll go see the band play tomorrow night. So I didn't go out that night and listen, or maybe out of date or something, I don't know, but I listened to the album like all day and all day Sunday, and, uh, and uh, it was the first album of the Allman Brothers Band. So... I said, I can uh, be back to, in Macon on such and such a day. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I was like crazy. How do you make a decision like that off of one album? That's because you were in your 20s. <laughs> and also you could live on a lot less money. Today people don't take those risks. Right, they don't. So you go to work for the Allman Brothers. Now he's got his label. Capricorn through Atlantic Records, and what are you doing? Well, interesting on Capricorn uh, and Atlantic Records and the label and the Allman Brothers, it had gone back. It really still had an association with uh, Muscle Shoals and, and not really Stax, but Atlantic. And Jerry Wexler had said to Phil, you know, I want to introduce you to Dwayne Allman. And then Dwayne wanted to do a band. They had they had, had bands, the, the the guys had had some bands before and all playing in Florida and different places. And 
and uh, but nothing really really stuck. And Dwayne was having this great experience uh, and an enhanced reputation, you know, from his studio work, pretty amazing. And uh, so then they put together the Allman Brothers Band. I think in originally they thought Dwayne could sing, but really, he, but he couldn't sing. They needed, <laughs> they needed they needed his brother. Um, so I was uh, I went down as a part owner of uh, an old reincarnated but therefore new agency and came up with a new name and called it Paragon Agency and uh, uh, still had an R&B roster, still had Percy Sledge, uh, I think Arthur Conley, um, Clarence Carter, and Candy Staten and signed Tyrone Davis and had Joe Simon and that's interesting because I put Joe Simon out on the road on several bookings, and a week later he and his brother walked in my office with a, with a, you know, like like eight foot by five foot, you know, big plywood looking, you know, board. Upon the board was affixed a map. It was the United States largest United States highway map. I'd, Seen maybe since the, you know, I don't know, but huge map. And they said, This is for you, Alex. <laughs> because I had stretched the driving between two gigs a little too far. They, <laughs> they made it, but they didn't want to do it again. <laughs> so, routing is an art at several levels. And uh, and that was uh, good. I knew it, but I probably knew I was pushing the envelope. And they accepted it. So when the band, you know, when the artist accepts it, you go, they accepted it. But it wasn't a time to argue about that. They didn't even complain. They brought me a map. <laughs> Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made, and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how long are you at the Paragon Agency? Well, it was, uh, as, as, as I said, it was kind of the old agency because, uh, interestingly, uh, Otis Redding's brother had, uh, after Otis died, had joined to uh, be an agent, and that was Walden Artist Promotions. But when I came back in 70 and we, you know, took over, took some ownership and renamed it and, you know, mapped out a new mission— uh, naming it Paragon, that would have been in uh, in the spring of, of 70. And um, we, we found that uh, some musicians were just getting in a van and coming to Macon because they wanted an opportunity to record. Even though there had been muscle shows and so forth, this was looked upon as new and fresh to a lot of young aspiring, aspiring uh, rock bands. Um, so there was a studio in addition. Yeah, so Phil and Frank Fenter had opened the studio of Capricorn Records. And so Wet Willie, for example, drove over from Alabama and other bands and musicians started accumulating. Dwayne had his reputation and then the Allman Brothers' first album came out. But even... As it's almost simultaneously, all of these things were happening, and musicians showing up, and even parents coming in and bringing their young, young musicians down. And and one of the things I noticed in 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 all of those, uh, you know, uh, aspirations from the young musicians, the better the presentation from them and their brother or manager or parent was the worst the music would be. I find the same thing. The people who send you the really long emails are terrible in real life. People, it's like one sentence. In real life, you could talk for hours. The best musicians didn't have the greatest presentation. Right. And it was uh, interesting. And then, so Capricorn was signing bands. I was listening to them and listening to the demos and listening to the product and making some, you know, some subjective judgment on whether they could be good. Then I would go see them in a club. 
And then that would add to my sense of uh, confidence that they could make it. I found, too, it's like uh, oversimplification, but sometimes you look at a band play and you see two bands, but only one on stage. Wait, wait, a little bit slower. What are we saying here? So, and, and that's why this, is a, this is, isn't as complicated as it sounds. You see a band and it doesn't work, but they're all good. So you just go like, wow, it doesn't work. They don't gel together. They don't seem to have a sense of who they are as a band. So maybe one of the musicians will end up being the road manager and they'll reform. And sometimes they'll just split up. But you have to, you can, you can sense it whether they have the right commitment and whether they have the right chemistry. And I'll, get, I'll tell you this. It was an interesting thing. I, I don't remember this very often or, or, or say it, but I'm sitting with Phil one day in his office, and Dwayne had been in Florida um, with Eric Clapton on the session for Layla, and uh, uh, he came in, and uh, he started talking about musicians and showing us a couple of snapshots he'd had, one, I think, with with Eric, and uh, and spoke about James Taylor and his the complexity of his music and the beauty of it, which, which was uh, just a great conversation. He talked about his band and that... Uh, they were a little tired, have to come off the road maybe pretty soon for a couple of weeks and get some rest. And um, um, and another musician came in and was struggling in another band. And uh, the side conversation was Dwayne said uh, to the other guy, he says, keep playing. If you play long enough, you'll find the guys you're supposed to play with. Wow. Powerful. And that explains my, you know, simple oversimplification, and it sounds complex, of see a band playing on stage, and they're new, and they're green, and you just sense that uh, they're all good. They should probably find other guys to play with. And uh, anyway, we, you know, the Marshall Tucker Band came through Macon. Phil and Frank Fenner were considering offers to sell some masters in bands before the big push would be, would come. And I remember saying, uh, uh, this song, uh, Can't You See, for Marshall Tucker Band is going to be a, a live performance anthem. Whether you make it a hit or or not, I think that uh, that song alone and the songwriting of Toy Caldwell, you you got to keep this band. Um, you know, and the rest is known. Or right, sort of course. Known, but you know, it's just just a great time. Wet Willie came. They played in a tent uh, at Alex Cooley's uh, Atlanta Pop Festival, and on the night before. And I don't know if they had a spot on the stage during the festival, but I saw them entertaining all of the workers, uh, you know, for the food break and stuff on the night before doing setup. And I thought, this one's pretty interesting. 
And uh, so, you know, uh, uh, Phil and Frank uh, signed Wet Willie Band. Um, you know, just a lot of interesting stuff. And Chuck Level, who I think everybody knows from, right. from uh, keyboard work with the Armour Brothers and also currently and for many, many years now with the Rolling Stones, he had a band and he'd come over and, uh, you know, it was just his talent was uh, remarkable. His first band with Capricorn didn't uh, didn't go anywhere. He laughs about it, but it uh, uh, you know they were probably better than you think. But again, it just, it didn't work. But but he was so amazing that uh, you know what a what a great guy and what a great career. So there's so many others, and we kept the R and B roster, and I kept signing people, and a and a Los Angeles resident singer songwriter. Uh, named Bobby Womack had recorded in uh, in Alabama, um, at, I guess at Muscle Shoals, I think, and uh, probably with uh, Rick Hall and those guys. Got to look all that stuff up. Um, so Bobby, we invited or found a way to invite Bobby Womack over to Los Angeles. I mean, over to Macon. excuse me, over to Macon, and uh, and I told him I could put a band behind him. And he wouldn't have to worry about being the, you know, the 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 the, the band. He wouldn't have to worry about the band because he'd been in bands and he, with his brother and the Valentinos and out of Cleveland and and what a remarkable uh, history. And Bobby and I struck up a friendship and I put some regional bands with him, depending on where I was going to book him. And then he got the Santana tour one year and that was uh, great. But he had some uh, some great great recordings, you know. Um, part of part of that was that we, I'd always felt from the early days that if you have uh, if you're having success, you want to a keep it, and b you got to look for maybe the next challenge to go along with it, and uh, and that's just been a. If you sit on status quo, it's not so good. And that goes for the band, the songwriter, the publisher, and for a booking agent. And uh, so Paragon had a good, uh, basically a 10-year run. Uh, And then something happened, and I made a decision to start a new agency in uh, 1980. uh, And I named it uh, Empire Agency. And no particular reason, but Atlanta was the uh, uh, kind of empire city of the South. And but I started it in Macon, out of my home. Um, and okay, well, what, what actually happened? Why'd you break away? Uh, the breakaway from uh, was happening organically, not any cause or intent on my part. I would have been happy if we'd had a 20-year career together, you know, with uh, with Phil or Capricorn, Paragon Agency. And, in fact, we should have. Or it should have been in 30 years. Um, but things occur driven sometimes by success and not opening your mind up to new ideas and music. And I think Phil had a moment of getting stale, and he had a moment of... Uh, of uh, the excesses of success taking over. 
So lo and behold, I get a phone call from an accountant saying, better bring your own accountant in. And I got gotcha. you. That pretty much tells okay. where, where it's going. That gonna, tells a story. Uh, <laughs> so you're you're in Atlanta with uh, Empire. So who are your acts then? So uh, when I started Empire, I signed um, uh, the Allman Brothers Band, uh, the Charlie Daniels Band, who had been my client before, um, Atlanta Rhythm Section, uh, a member of the Outlaws for a little while, and uh, um, who am I missing? You know, maybe one more band. But we, we started small and started out of my house in Macon. And a young woman who had been working at Capricorn or Phil Walden's management company was out of a job. And I thought she was an amazing talent. And she came over to help me with uh, some books as I was closing up the Paragon days. And her name was Carol Kinzel. So Carol uh, came to work in my living room, and I worked in the foyer or vice versa. And my secretary came and worked in the hallway, and my son sat on the steps and tried to mimic us. And my wife made lunch, and that started Empire Agency. And the first big tour I booked, then Charlie Daniels broke his arm on his farm. And I had to cancel the whole thing. <laughs> now, here we're starting a new company. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, how, do you, how do you, you know, get by? And the Allman Brothers were known for their taking a hiatus frequently, often, broke up and come back and so forth. They would change managers. Um, so the, you know, uh, you know the, the Capricorn Records was – going bankrupt or did go bankrupt i started over and it was it was fun again but i signed another artist uh, a couple of years into empire um, who was working clubs nothing bigger than clubs and a friend of mine said come see this band and i sent a young guy i had hired <clears throat> Named uh, named Rick Alter. I sent him to Texas to see a young uh, musician who's no longer a baby, but he was still pretty young, named Stevie Ray Vaughan. And Rick came back and said, "Alex, this this is for you." <laughs> he just felt it right, and I go, "Okay." Um, now. Interestingly, you know, Steve is a guitar band. And is in a time in the early 80s where no label wanted a guitar band. The music had changed. And I had changed with it to a degree, even though I had Allman Brothers and, 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 and the Atlanta Rhythm Section, Charlie Daniels. I had been at, at, at Paragon Agency. We had imported, we had brought in Squeeze and Gang of Four and 999 before the New York agencies were bringing any of those artists into the States. And we also brought in the police. So I was stretching myself to listen to new music. And we were 
doing that. Consequently, we were also doing that at uh, uh, at Empire. But I had encouraged Ian Copeland, to, you know, young guy, uh, and John Huey, young guy, go to New York, start an agency. And they started FBI and really had a great run. So, but, you know, back to my chapter, um, we put Stevie Ray Vaughan on as an opener to Greg Allman at a club in Atlanta across the street from uh, the Fox Theater. Um, pretty sure it was Alex Cooley was the promoter, but at different times that club had been booked by different promoters. <clears throat> so... Uh, anyway, I went early because the manager was a friend that I hadn't seen in 10 years, and I didn't go to Texas to check it out. Right. I had sent somebody, so I felt obliged in early March to go to the show and be there when they arrived. And I'm sitting in this little outdoor patio, and in walks Chesley and the band and Stevie Ray Vaughan. And... Uh, you know, so I remember standing up, introducing myself, or being introduced. It was just some kind of uh, click that uh, eye contact. We we sort of had a uh, a pretty cool bond, right? You know, from the get go. We're talking but, about Stevie. Stevie, I had not seen him play, and I didn't know much about his reputation. I had heard a little bit about him. Um, uh, Ray Benson from Asleep at the Wheel had called me one day and said, uh, uh, you got to check out Stevie Ray Vaughan. Somebody else had said, Stevie Ray Vaughan's going to sign with uh, Rolling Stones Records. And, you know, and how do you, you know, just tidbits of information. Right. But I hadn't gone to see him. I hadn't sought him out. Chesley called. I sent somebody. I didn't go myself. And now here I am putting him on a show. And having to meet with Chesley and say what commitment I would make, and Chesley said, "You've got to, you've got to, you've got to tell me and live up to it that no show will be under a thousand dollars." So, not much money, but at the club scene, there's a lot of five hundred, seven hundred fifty, and eight hundred dollar gigs, you know. So I made the commitment, and it wasn't to average them out. No single show would be under a thousand dollars. And uh, so I committed, and they, and of course, he hadn't played yet. <laughs> but I just felt there was enough information and confidence in my young guy who worked for me, um, and I'd found out that he was, you know, had some a lot, a lot of had done a lot of work in, in those various clubs. Just needed somebody to push it a little harder. Um, he went on stage. And you just, you know, your your jaw drops and your eyes get bigger and you just go, I don't believe it. And it's just absolutely that good. And, you know, you always wonder if you are in a receptive mode and it's not really that good. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know? So all of Greg's musicians just came and said, oh, my God, unbelievable. This is just, this is just, just totally unreal and um, so I congratulated him on a good set and we went to work then we got him I think Carol actually booked the show at the bottom line in New York 
and uh, Stevie uh, uh, Stevie took the headlines as the opener. Um, Who was the headliner again? Um, I probably wouldn't have remembered except for a story Rob Light told me in the last <laughs> couple of years. Um, uh, uh, Brian Adams, I think. I'm pretty sure. We should look that up. But anyway, um, we took the headlines. You know, like who would be afraid of a little of a, a three-piece guitar band to open up at the bottom line? Um, Chesley had been in the industry from uh, Columbia Records in uh, in uh, London, had worked with the Grateful Dead in San Francisco, and had had a, had a lot of friends in a lot of places. And he had invited um, uh, Mick Jagger to see Stevie at the bottom line. And and Mick Jagger has a way of slipping in and slipping out without being seen, but he was he was there. And others wanted, uh, um, you know, were were blown away. You know, I mean, in New York, at the bottom line, at some other clubs, you know, uh, people are always curious about what's going on. And sometimes people miss the opening act. Right. But it was packed. <laughs> and Stevie did, a, did did his thing. It was just amazing. But he was also going to go on tour um, uh, with David Bowie. And I remember in the dressing room saying, uh, you know, we'll book some side dates, we'll book on off dates, we'll, and I'll, we'll, your record is now out. The record was out and uh, it was exploding. Not exploding in the way Ultimately we Ultimately on CBS. The it, record, he didn't make a deal with Rolling Stone. The album came out on CBS. On Epic. Right. Part of the CBS company. Right. Um, John Hammond signing. And I mentioned earlier that nobody was signing guitar bands. John Hammond, um, I guess Chester went to a lot of labels. He actually, Stevie was helped by Jackson Brown. He loaned him his studio for some for some of the work that, that came out on uh, Texas Flood. Anyway, um, uh, nobody wanted a guitar band. They pressed 10,000 units originally. Hello? Nothing. They were sold in three days. And not just in Texas, but considerably in Texas. They relabeled it, gave it a new number, put it out again, and and pushed the envelope, and, uh, you know, Stevie was uh, did a video, and Stevie was recouped in the first nine months. I don't know that it went gold in nine months, but it was soon to go gold. And, of course, uh, he continued to put out records, all recouped within a very short time. When I say it was exploding, it wasn't exploding like you saw during a a later period of time where you know 400,000 albums in right. in a week but it was it was really taking off and uh so I think we did probably you know he had you know gold in in x number of months maybe first year and then later platinum but here's here's uh you know again uh, swimming upstream against the grain and uh uh but Stevie was so unique uh, and patient, didn't want something that wasn't earned or wasn't there. Um, listened to me, and we got the opportunity to, uh, to do the Moody Blues Tour. Here's Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, 
1983, 84, um, would you put him on the Moody Blues tour? No. And that was the common thought. No. And I said yes. I talked Chesley into it, which was not easy. Uh, and Stevie was open-minded. That really helped. Found something in common over the years with certain musicians who would listen and were open-minded and could could uh, accept. They could they could know when something wasn't right and say no. They could know when something was so easy to say yes to, even question it. <clears throat> and when something was a little more difficult, they could kind of think it through. Uh, ultimately, Stevie said, let's go do this. This will be the, the, it's an arena tour. Part of my logic was, um, who are the fans of the Moody Blues? Aren't they the same fans as right. Eric Clapton? Right, they're I mean, all rockers. Just, just think about it, right? So Stevie has to get the experience of an arena level. Um, it's a different experience. And, you know, how was he going to, you know, do? How was they, how were they going to, and it's not so much how would they accept him, but that's certainly a consideration and a part of it. But he needed the exposure then the, and the experience. And he needed it with, um, in my opinion, fans that would adapt to him and accept him really quickly. There was some... I guess today you would call them blogs. There was some, you know, sheets that were, right. were out that uh, were very critical. Wanted Stevie to be the uh, traditional new blues guy, nothing more, and and nothing less. Just blues guy, not trying to, you know, rank it in any particular way. But but Stevie saw himself um, being unique, different and committed to the words guitar band. He knew what he wanted to do. And he challenged himself musically, and he was still doing so when he, when he died. Um, but that was, uh, that was a big decision. It wasn't necessarily an easy one, and not everybody went along with it, but it worked. And then, of course, you know, things passed. The, the arena tour was only so many dates. I'd have to look it up. I don't remember how many dates, but then what are you going to do? Well, then you go back to clubs and theaters. But his reputation was enhanced. The fan base was bigger. We could command more money. So it was, a, it was you know, the right thing to do, and it was a part of the chapter of, of stepping up. Later on, we did a Robert Plant tour, and then much later on, uh, in a fairly short recording career, but I, I say, you know, a bit later on, yeah, the conversation came about whether we would uh, co-headline or do a tour with Jeff Beck. And I remember the conversations. Uh, Jeff Beck had canceled a tour or two in the States, I believe, gone home early. But in any case, it didn't, it was like, you know, where's Stevie and where's Jeff? And Epic Records had picked him up and had a really cool uh, album out. Um, and 
Stevie and I discussed it. And this this is, unfortunately, Stevie and, and Chesley, my friend, had broken up. Uh, I had suggested different managers for Stevie to interview with, and they'd, they didn't click. And uh, I said, well, you know, have the 10th meeting, and if, and if there's uh, you're still not, you know, clicking with one of these prospective managers who would love to be involved, um, then put my, list, my name down as number 11. And he said, then it's a list of one, not 11. And that was in a hotel room. And that's how I started managing Stevie. So we ended up with this Jeff Beck tour. And, uh, you know, you read things that people put out, whether you're writing something or somebody else is. And uh, the consensus was it wasn't going to be a successful arena-level tour. Um, But we won tour package of the year in two publications. We had a very successful tour. CV closed in New York City, and we had sold 360 degrees, 20,000 people, and everybody saying, do you have an extra ticket because we can run it to the box office? And it was, uh, it was, it was, the whole thing was amazing. It was really great. It was a lot of fun. I don't know what we've missed in all that. Missed, no, I, we missed a lot of stuff. Well, wait, 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 wait. So, Stevie, that continues. Now you're a manager. When do you start managing uh, Greg Allman? Uh, when the Allman Brothers had broken up and I was in Marietta still with, uh, uh, with Empire Agency and before I moved to California with ICM, um, the Allman Brothers uh, were on tour and something had happened and the band was not getting along uh, and they broke up. Um, I think at that time they may have been on Arista Records. Uh, wasn't a great album. I don't think Clive Davis was really happy, and they weren't happy with each other. And uh, but Greg wanted to work, and Dickie wanted to work, so we were booking both. And Greg didn't have a manager. Uh, whatever had happened with different possibilities of management, so. Um, his attorney, who's a fellow in Atlanta, said, well, let's start a management company and call it Rescue Productions or something like that. And uh, I said, that's really not what I'm doing. You know, I'm an agent, but let me help you on this. So we started, you know, formulating how to do that. And he and his wife were, the lawyer and his wife were doing the books and taking care of that aspect. But he wasn't in the music business. So I ended up running the, running the store. And um, Greg called me one day, said, um, get rid of this guy. <laughs> so, and his mother asked me one day, have you, talked to that fellow, and I said, not yet. She said, well, you'll know when it's the right time. Greg's mom was really smart and a, and a, and a, and a good lady. Anyway, um, we, um, I started managing Greg um, in his uh, band with the Toller Brothers and, uh, because Greg liked to work. 
You know, if he wasn't working with an organized type situation, he'd show up and work with musicians that he would know and find himself with a band and out there and pick up some pick up some change and work. He liked to he he, he liked to work. Um, but he needed he needed a new career. The Almond Brothers needed a new career, but they were not speaking, and uh, I was listening to songs for with the band and in Florida they had an, a, a, a means of doing demos right so they'd do demos I'd send them around and get rejected even from friends who had had previously loved the Elmer Brothers band uh, one guy said it's like selling a used tire Alex <laughs> and uh, uh, but I was uh I was convinced that uh, it could be a, a, a new start, you know. Um, uh, one of his managers said to me one day, he said, Greg could sing the, you know, the, the phone book, you know. But uh, I, I felt there was a viability, but the time was, you know, the mood is just, the time wasn't there. And, and Greg says, you know, I'm probably going to be the only guy with long hair left. You know? <laughs> but that's not going to change. And uh, anyway, we did photo sessions and we did this and that and uh, listened to songs. I mean, I listened to hundred thousands of songs on albums to try to find one. I listened to tapes that people sent. And... All of a sudden, somebody, and I i should, you know, I apologize to that person now. I don't remember who sent me the tape, but I'm no angel was on it. And uh, I was moving to L.A. And Greg came to L.A. Uh, we had some work to do and some interviews and, and, and things to do. He came to the ICM office, and I played him a tape for the first time with I'm No Angel, the demo that was sent. And he said, I could do that. So uh, Willie Perkins was my partner on Greg Allman and uh, uh, got it to the band, got the tape to the band. They worked it up, went in the studio in Florida and did a demo. To how similar was their version to the original demo? Pretty pretty close. Okay. Pretty close. Um, changed a little, you know, some. Right. Um, Maybe not change as much as Stevie changed Crossfire, which is a, another story of the you know bandmates of his right. and others wrote Crossfire. And I was on a bus and listened to that tape, and I said, this is the one you should listen to, Stevie, and see if you want to actually massage it and work it out and record it. And uh, But anyway, so I'm, uh, I'm no angel, and I, I sent so many... You know, I mean, I even – I would cut out ads uh, from Billboard, from a label, and they'd show the titles of six albums, you know. And I would say, how can I take their ad and superimpose it, cut and paste, uh, put Greg's name in on top or third or something, and then make point an arrow to it and send them a demo and send them – their own ad, but you know, with with the Greg Allman band uh, name on it, 
Uh, I'd go to meetings. I'd fly out here and play. Nothing. Couldn't get. I could get in the door. That was a compliment, you know. But and I was working with Stevie, and I was an agent, and had had all of these years of, of uh, some notoriety and success. I could get in the door, but nobody was buying. And I had all these really cool songs, I thought. But all of a sudden, you know, Greg did this demo. So I put, you know, call it three songs. I don't really remember. And it two or three songs and uh, sent them around. And uh, um, I think at Epic in New York, um, Is it Bill Barrett? Anyway, maybe Lenny Pizzi. The record that my little demo that we'd done for Greg and his musicians in the band, and, and it was given to somebody who was flying back. Um, and it wasn't Harvey Leeds. He, he got into it as soon as he got to hear the, the demo. But it, in any case... Uh, um, you know, on a plane listening to tapes. And I got a call like, you know, January the 3rd of whatever year that was. Um, we like this. We can get 100 stations on this. Let's go do it. And I'm going like, I'm out and pinching myself. <laughs> this is crazy. I said, okay. So anyway, we ultimately made a deal with Epic. Uh, years later, I saw uh, an executive uh, who uh, who tapped me on the shoulder at a restaurant and said, was I'm no angel on the demo that I had? I said, you'll have to go back and find that demo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just to be clear, your empire, at what point do you move to the West Coast? 1984. And what's your decision to do that about? Well, partly because some people say you work for yourself for so long, you won't work for anybody else. And uh, I thought that's an interesting comment. But I wondered what it was like at a large agency, a full-service agency. And I could bring clients, and I could do this job, and I, and, and I had, a, you know, with all of my experience, I knew I had a lot to learn, you know, because it's a big world out there. Um, so um, we talked for a long time, went quiet for a while, talked again, went to New York, talked, and um, Jeff Berg was in the South or in Atlanta and grabbed a car and drove to my home in Marietta. And I said, you move me out there, you're going to move me, wife, two children, two dogs, cars, you know, my 41 Ford truck, <laughs> <laughs> and a 60 T-Bird. And I said, you know, you sure you want to do this? You know, and of course, he said, we've moved people before. Uh, I probably had the biggest moving bill they'd seen in a long time. <laughs> In any case, uh, I moved out. It was like I met with my team. I said, here's a plan. Keep booking. I worked out this deal. I'm going to absorb everybody. You don't have to look for a job tomorrow. 
need you to stay on and have a kind of a smooth transition. And, um, and showed up around Memorial Day uh, 1984. And, uh, and, you know, when you're in certain towns in the old days, you could pull in a service station and ask, ask uh, the service station attendant or somebody, you know, say, how do I get to? Right. And they'll tell you. Right. Well, I was staying at La Park Hotel, and nobody at any <laughs> service station or anywhere else had any clue of the streets or La Park Hotel or how to direct me. And I think I finally went into some store and bought a Thomas God. <laughs> uh, it took me hours to get back to my hotel that night because I have a habit of working when everybody else is gone. And uh, in any case, uh, it was fun. I, we were on Beverly Boulevard. Right. And I was on, I think, the sixth floor, and um, and it was pretty cool. It had me a very nice uh, corner office. It was amazing. And it wasn't too long after that, a, a friend who I'd known over the years for different associations brought me uh, uh, a band to sign and book, and we did it. It was called Loudness, Japanese rock band, hard rock band, Japanese band, great Gave me a watch I still have that the sun makes the, this, you know, the, uh, uh, the symbol of the, right. of the uh, come. It's like, you know, kind of interesting. And I put them at Santa Monica, at the San Jose Civic <laughs> with Bill Graham. And uh, there's a poster up that now that we've re, re, uh, reframed and put up, found. Anyway, here it is in the, in the you know, 1984, 85, um, and I said, okay, give me some material to listen to, and I'll turn it over to the guys. Fella hands me the smallest album I'd ever seen. <laughs> so it turns out, you know, it was, right. it was a compact disc, right? It was a CD, and we didn't even have one purchased in the office. So that was uh, the band loudness led to us investing in uh, – some equipment to play CDs at ICM. Pretty funny story. Absolutely. <laughs> Although, you know, it's funny. I went to the Music Cares. They still give away a CD. It's like, hey, my computer doesn't even have a CD player. <laughs> okay, how does it end with ICM? Um, so many interesting stories about at, at, at ICM. Um, um, I became a responsible agent for bands that I hadn't like grown up with from, right. from first album in the Capricorn days, or hadn't had a story of like Stevie Ray being unsigned. And uh, all of a sudden, here's you got this monster roster, and CAA is is blossoming and poaching all the agents and poaching all the bands, and uh, and. Uh, so you've really got to meet new people and absorb yourself and get some sense of confidence from them and hire and fire and coach and do all of those things all at once very quickly. Um, uh, fascinating. And the routing from from territorially, the West Coast office was booking the western states. And it's not as many cities and you know, right. as, as, as in the Midwest and the East and the Southeast. So, uh, you know, different, just a different deal. Big, 
And uh, but I enjoyed it. But I met Don Arden, famous manager. Yes, Sharon Osbourne's father. Yeah, I met. I became a responsible agent for a couple of his clients. Okay, and uh, I was thrown into you're going to be the West Coast guy to you know to talk to John Denver, and uh, you know all of a sudden you know that they had this roster, um, and they needed uh, you know they they had a new guy right, and I'm the new guy with a Southern accent. And I'm sure the the hierarchy and the pecking order of all of Los Angeles who might know ICM had hired this guy, and times had changed musically, uh, and I was probably given no more than six months by any betting card. Uh, but I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> so how long do you work for ICM? I worked for them until, uh, I'd say, I think it was January of 88. And interesting, I just signed a new contract, but I got an interesting offer from Jimmy Niederlander. So when I told you I'd worked for right. Niederlanders twice, the first time started in 1988. And was it same operation, same job? Pretty much similar, you know. And how long did you do I that? I don't think we had titles back then. Or right, something. right. How long but did you do that for? I was, uh, I was uh, how long what? How long did you work with Niederlander the first time? 88 through most of the season of 94. And then you go to HOB? No, there was there was there was really no HOB. I think they were still putting up folk art on Sunset. Okay. Um but um I met with uh uh the MCA folks. Right. And, one of the guys was out. Jay Marciano was in, and um, um, so they had talked to me before. But this was '94, and in '94, done some really cool things with Needlelander. We had done, uh, uh, and I was the point guy. We had done two dates of Pink Floyd at Yankee Stadium. We had opened the pond which is now right. Hunter Center, when had six shows of Barbara Streisand, two nights, I think, of uh, Rod Stewart. We were doing dates at the sports arena, plus, of course, the Greek Theater and Pacific Amphitheater. So here I was, you know, this was, uh, and they had their amphitheaters, which we, you know, described right. and we talked about. So I'm... Managing Stevie Ray Vaughan, I've got the Greek theater under my umbrella. I've got my own private management company, and I work for Jimmy Niederlander. This is pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but 1994, um, you know, they knocked on my door, and I, you know, reciprocated, I suppose. And uh, uh, I told Jimmy that I had a, an offer, and I think, Sometime around September in the fall, I took the offer and moved over to, uh, uh, you know, I think at first it was a closet that they gave me, but, um, <laughs> you know, with an air, you know, right, air right, condition right. on my head, right. I got the flu right off the bat. What was I, your responsibility there? Now, in, in all in all seriousness, they, uh, you know, you got to get, you got, you got to get 
offices ready, and and you got to assimilate and uh, and get yourself into a new position. And and so, uh, booking would be one of my responsibilities. I was vice president or executive vice president or senior vice president or some 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 level. I don't think it was executive vice president title, but it was decent and good pay and a nice offer and. All of a sudden, a new environment. Um, so, you know, a lot of vibrancy. Jay was uh, getting the uh, Toronto Amphitheater uh, finished up and had had his eyes on opening an amphitheater in San Diego. All of this was uh, in order. Um, we had um, we had an amphitheater deal in. Uh, Cleveland and one in Dallas and Atlanta and you know this I mean it's a big operation they had uh, MCA had a booking office in uh, New York um, so you know it was kind of similar but a different inventory of venues and Universal Amphitheater was the, the 12 month a year competition to the Greek theater. Right. Greek being seasonal and outdoors, Universal Amphitheater, uh, indoors and 12 months a year. And so I became, you know, uh, one of the one of the key bookers for that. We recruited um, um, uh, Melissa Miller before she was married, Melissa Orman now uh, uh, as well. Larry Vallon was still there. He was doing some of the venues in transitioning a little bit away from Universal um, and I uh, met a young girl lady and uh, and a uh, young woman in special events who was uh, uh, helping to work on the Latin shows. And so I started working with her closer, um, you know, getting rid of her bosses and bringing her up in, <laughs> in, in stature. And anyway, there we are at... Uh, the calendar for Universal Amphitheater, and as a booker, as an as a as a promoter with a venue, I mean, whether it be the Greek or whether it be Universal, is two you know great venues, iconic, right? Iconic venues, and um, so matter of the calendar and 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 making the choices and being competitive and paying more money than the other guy. Doing a better job at marketing than the other guy, so we we had a good we had a good run, and then one day uh, the company was sold to Edgar Brofman, and then Edgar Brofman decided he wanted every label in the world, and he was going to get rid of some uh, smaller and boutique companies, and uh, didn't really put the equation together that a concert promoting wing company or division was synergistically important and core to the record business. And you can make the argument one way or the other, but, you know, live music... Well, certainly it changed <laughs> after uh, the turn of the century. Right. Okay, so then you're with HOB. And then, uh, and then the HOB thing is interesting because we were interested in making a deal to kind of acquire this HOB equation uh, into... Uh, MCA Universal Concerts. And I think the name Universal Concerts, MCA Concerts, changed a couple of times, you know. And and um, 
It makes designers happy because they can redo the cards. <laughs> um, so we ultimately go, wow, we need, we need a new home. Our company is being sold. So SFX or Clear Channel or a SMG facility management company now merged in, in ASM. And what's, what's going to happen here? Um, ultimately, with the banking equation and the investment equation of House of Blues, they thought and we thought and the selling party, MCA, thought it would be good to, you know, figure out how to have a merger or an acquisition of uh, House of Blues and pick up uh, MCA Concerts. So MCA Concerts becomes House of Blues Concerts and off and running. Now, House of Blues ultimately was affected by their investments and in all kinds of new technology. It was imploding. How do you ultimately get from House of Blues back to Nederlander? Well, a couple of chapters and a couple of things in particular there. One, the House of Blues thought they had the new model for, uh, you know, videoing. Right. Concerts. Concerts in the clubs. And there was some people there uh, were convinced that it was going to change the outcome of selling albums to the extent that they wouldn't have to pay royalties and get releases from the artists they were recording. I don't think that worked out so well. <laughs> the The thing that really worked was that uh, you had two good divisions. Two, you had the concert group with this new logo and brand, and you had a pretty amazing brand with House of Blues. And I say amazing because... I could check in a hotel almost any city in in the States and or be on an airplane and somebody say, Boy, I love the House of Blues in my city. And I say, Where do you live? Indianapolis, Indiana. They don't have a House of Blues. <laughs> Seattle, Washington. They didn't have a House of Blues. <laughs> but you know the brand was huge and almost went public. The way the company almost went public. But this this um dot com bubble kind of burst and that was one of the that was one of the equations to take the dot com thing and and the, all of that new technology and that was going to be explosive and take us into the public world and you know be a, a, a very successful stock market equation uh it didn't happen but we were still doing business doing it well a uh, lot of you know changes around the scene um, outside, um, meaning SFX to Clear Channel to then the spinoff of Live Nation, and ultimately in 2006, uh, Michael Rapino got his board to make a pretty darn big offer for uh, House of Blues, and I stayed on a few months, and. Uh, was one of the last uh, concert executives to leave, and a lot of changes. And uh, then uh, I left, and 
was sitting at home helping my son book a tour that never happened on a van. But we had it routed, had some deposits that just didn't happen. Just kind of having fun, you know, uh, playing playing with with adult toys and helping my son and this and that. Uh, and I remember going shopping for a gift for my wife and running into uh, a house a Nederlander executive who said, uh, "You got to come back. <laughs> Jimmy wants you back." And uh, ultimately, we started talking, and I walked in the door in April of 2007. If you hadn't gone back to Nederlander, do you think you would have been done, or would you have found something else? I'd probably found something else. I mean, I was thinking about the agency world with, uh, um, you know, uh, the routing of bands, the other side of the – it's the same equation, you know, and and how to book. I I don't think I would – Listening to those skills, but I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have any clients in the, for the agency world. And Stevie Ray Vaughan had died in 1990, so all of a sudden, you 16 years later, and uh, when they sold, and 17 years later, when I walked back in the door, uh, certainly I miss every chapter that I went through in all of these iterations. I miss them, and somebody said, well, you remember the good stuff. And I go, well, of course I remember the good stuff. I remember the hard stuff, um, but I uh, I like what I do now, and I like what I did then. So it, it to answer your question, if if I hadn't have gone back to Nederlander, I would have, I would have uh, and I was talking to some people, I would have, uh, I would have stayed uh, in the business and probably and, and on the live music side. Possibly as an agent, possibly another promoting company. Okay, so we've heard your long storied career. Are you going to be a booking like that guy who died during the show two weeks ago? Are you going to die at the uh, venue? I don't think so, but um, I might die at a new venue that we haven't opened yet. What I guess I'm saying, without using the euphemism, are you ever going to retire? You know, I have I have hobbies and things that I like to do, like water skiing. Water skiing, in particular. Right. I'm uh, at my age. I'm pretty. All of my nephews, nieces, brothers, any, they've all quit water skiing, and I still slalom, water ski, cut back and forth, cross the wake. Uh, you know, I'm I I enjoy it. It gets me. It gets me going. I'll say my breath gives out a little sooner than it used to, so I got to work on my 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 legs and my cardio. Right. But uh, but I love that. I love anything on the water. I could probably uh, figure out something that allowed me to be on the water more and be a happy camper. Um, but I like what I do. I like the challenges. I have always been uh, in an underdog situation. And if you go to back to the very beginning. Story that I've told you, and I forget the story in the transition because you got to go to work every day. But um, you know, small Macon, Georgia, and we aren't the biggest now. We're a small independent promoting company, thankfully supported by the Needlelander family, by Jimmy Needlelander, you know Jimmy Senior's son, 
James L. Niederlander is a great boss and a great partner and a great friend and enormously supportive to our, uh, you know, to our uh, uh, staff. So we like to think we're the, the, you know, really unique in, in, in how we find a way to keep doing it and then do it better and then grow. And, you know, three consecutive years of improvement since the city took over the Greek, and we still book shows at the Greek. So as long as there's a challenge, I'm probably up for it. Okay. You've seen so much. You've booked so much. Your two favorite shows ever. Oh, boy, that's hard. I know, but I'm going to make you do it. You want to give me six? No. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a few more if you got them on the top of your head. Well, you know, uh, when before I could drive, I saw I saw Elvis Presley at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was an indelible imprint. It was just cool, and it was a matinee show, um, and I couldn't drive. So when you think about you know how that plays, I don't know really how it plays except. And they were screaming so loud you couldn't hear everything the way you wanted to. But it was a totally indelible, amazing. Did that have anything to do with the career that I right. later have? Who knows? Are you directed by some unseen force? I you know, I have no idea. But I know people go to shows and they don't end up being an agent. <laughs> um I would guess uh one of my favorites would be would be um, Stevie Ray Vaughan at uh, Madison Square Garden. If you take the whole thing and put it together, that I had told him, I'd asked him, "Have you been an opening act at Madison Square Garden before we met?" or he said, no, and I haven't even been in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and I said, you won't go to Madison Square Garden to play or, you know, until we can headline. And in that particular venue, my goal for you is to headline and we'll be able to sell 360 all the way around. Meantime, we'll do... New Jersey and Long Island, anything and everything right. else. But we're not going to go to Madison Square Garden until you can head on and we can sell 360, and we accomplished that. It was pretty amazing. Everything about that day was amazing, um, pretty cool. you got to really add some, some uh, you know, when we did uh, Barbara Streisand at the Pond, that was totally special. Some of the shows that I that I remember, you know, that I really liked a, a lot, uh, uh, you know, anything the police did, I always thought was great, and we were involved. I thought, I, I, uh, you know, sometimes you got to pay for a ticket, right? And John Huey, who I had hired and worked for me in Macon, had moved to New York and working with Ian, and I flew to New York, and we got on the train. And we went to Long Island to see the wall, Pink Floyd, the wall, that first time. Right, 1980. And uh, 
I'm telling you that that's got to rank in uh, you know a top three, no matter what. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, pretty uh, pretty amazing. Um, so I don't know. They're really they're really hard to to pinpoint. I, I think if I had if I if I had a, a a drink with you on Saturday and a drink with you on Sunday and a drink with you on Monday and you asked me the same question, I'd probably for the most part pick different shows. I don't know if they'd be the same, but maybe these were these were pretty pretty special, pretty indelible. Okay, Alex, I know we've only scratched for knowing for all these scratch the surface. There's so many store stories. Maybe another time, but thanks for being here. You're thank you for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Till next time, this is Bob Lefset. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hills and Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.